So this evening I'd like to um, explore a little bit more some of the, the things that Nathan spoke about last night, and particularly the, what I call in my mind, the self-build, which is not the way that term is usually used. So it's not about building your own home. It's about the way that we participate in in the creation of, of the sense of self that we have. So a couple of months ago, I was, um, I was on a self-retreat. And one early morning, I woke up from a dream. And in that dream, a whole story had unfolded, which resulted in me feeling really, really angry. And so I, I was waking up, as I was waking up from the intensity of the emotion actually, I was feeling this intense anger, really, really intense anger. And I could, yeah, I could feel the intensity and I could feel it also very vividly. It was really, really vivid and it was, I was really, really angry, you know, like really, really, really angry. And because of the situation of, of being on retreat and the mind being very quiet, I, as I was waking up, even though it was in this process of waking up, I could really see very clearly that the anger, I could see the inner talk around the anger, I could see the, the dynamic of the anger. And I could really feel how strong it was, how intense and how unpleasant it was to feel that, that angry. And so as I was waking up with this experience, with this kind of experience of this um, almost overwhelming anger and the unpleasantness of it, um, this realization came, you know, that this was just a dream, you know, which sounds very obvious, you know, this was just a dream. Um, but, you know, I happen to quite often wake up in my life with a residue of a dream and the emotional residue and, and it's not always, at least for me, not always that, that clear, you know, yeah, it's a dream, but, and this time it was really clear, this is, this is just a dream and the anger, which feels so real, you know, is so real, is actually rooted in something that happened in my imagination. You know, so the anger feels extremely real. It is real, but it's rooted in something that happened in my imagination. And the way my mind is dealing with this anger is that it keeps repeating the story that happened in the dream, which was an imagined story, you know. It didn't actually happen. And so really seeing the kind of uselessness and pointlessness of the anger and the whole dynamic around it, you know, this replaying, reinvigorating of that, of that emotional experience and everything that goes with it. And so then the kind of realization came, you know, quite obvious, but, well, I can let go, you know, there's anger, the anger is rooted in a dream, it's imaginary, it's not real, it's not serving any purpose whatsoever, I can let go. 
So the realization that I can let go and I have a choice here was really, really clear. And I find this really interesting. You know, as I said, it's kind of obvious, but <laughs> it's also very, very interesting to, to really see it that clearly. Anger arising from dream, fulfilling no use, no, no use whatsoever, has no purpose. I can let go. I have a choice. And with that realization, which came, you know, so, so, so clearly and so powerfully, I did let go. And the anger went from, you know, really angry, high intensity to nothing in a moment. It was, it was very, very interesting and powerful to see that that is possible. It can go from filling up the whole being and spilling over, you know, kind of toxic radi radiation of anger to nothing in the act of letting go, when there's that clarity of the letting go. And so following on from that, there were a few insights that I just want to kind of go into more detail. Again, they're quite clear from, from this story, but just to kind of pull them out and highlight them. So the first insight was, wow, if, if that complete letting go was possible <laughs> in more situations, how much happier I would be. You know, so, ma so many situations where there's an intensity of emotion or reactivity which isn't actually fulfilling much use, even when it's not an imaginary thing. And how much happier I would be if I could really let go more often. The second insight was to, to see with that the, the specific conditions that were at play here that allowed this letting go to happen. You know, one was that clarity of mind of, of being on a on retreat. Um, and also the fact that the causes of the, of the anger were so clearly <laughs> nothing that I could hold on to, you know, because it was a dream, because it was imaginary. So there was no, no story I could tell myself that would justify holding on to the anger. And the third insight was that, you know, it is actually really possible to let go completely. You know, it's possible. You know, it's really... You might be amazed that, you know, I've only realized that two months ago. But um, maybe I have before and I've forgotten. But it's really in, so powerful in such a simple, simple way. Really, really um, powerful. That it's possible to let go of something completely and to really go from kind of full involvement, like 200% involvement in something, to zero, to nothing. And it reminded me of the, a metaphor that the Buddha used a lot for, for letting go. And he used to say that um, when, we see, when we see clearly something that is causing us suffering, it's like letting go of a hot coal. <laughs> you know, we naturally drop it when we really see uh, this, is, this is suffering and this suffering can be let go of. It's like letting go of a hot coal, which we would probably, most of us, do pretty quickly if we found one in our hand, you know, we just let it go. So, personally, I, find every, I found everything that I've just told you very interesting. And I'm hoping that you found it at least mildly interesting. And for me, it gets even more interesting. And I'll tell you why. And so there I was, still in bed, you know, I'm still in this process of waking up, and I'm in bed, and all of this has happened. And I'm still really paying attention to 
what is happening inside. And then I notice, okay, the anger is gone. The letting go has been complete and there's a sense of relief that the anger is gone. You can't hear me? No, I'm in the wind. Ah, okay. Wasn't sure there. <laughs> it's, it's one of the signs. can't hear you. Okay. Sorry. So, back to the story. Letting go has happened. There's a sense of relief. I'm looking at my experience, and I notice that there's still in there, with the letting go being complete, the anger's gone, sense of relief, and there's still a contraction. And there's a still a very, very subtle level of dis-ease, of discomfort. So what's that? You know, this was really interesting. What, what's that? What's going on there? So looking more closely. And what it felt like was that there was a contraction in the being that was holding on to something. It was holding on to something. Like the image that was coming is like, you know, when, when the hand holds on to something. But there's actually nothing there anymore to hold on to. So the holding on to the anger, the anger was gone, but the holding on was still there, like a hand that's still grasping air, holding on to air. And that was causing a real sense of, um, of discomfort. And what was amazing was that it, it, I could feel how strongly, how hard that holding on was still happening, like a reflex, really strong really, really strong, holding on to, to nothing, you know, to nothing, to where the anger was before. So this grasping, this kind of, is what was causing the sense of disease or discomfort or in, in Pali or in Dharma language you would say causing dukkha, you know, causing suffering. It's actually that holding on to, that was causing this subtle level, this kind of, yeah, undercurrent. So looking at this more, both, you know, in that moment, still in bed, and also when I look at it now with reflection, what, what I can see is that level of involvement and participation in the experience of anger. Yeah, that level of involvement and participation, and I'll say more about this, so hopefully it will be clear. So that part of me, which the sense of self that latches on to the experience, so anger arises, and then the self latches onto that and identifies with it. And actually the say, you know, in Dharma languages, the self becomes. <laughs> yeah, that's where the becoming happens. So it's not just mental formations and physical sensations that are happening, but it's my anger. I'm angry. That participation. So that sense of identity that just kind of comes up very, very quickly. You know, again, dream, dream story, anger, self-involvement in the anger, self-identity. 
with the anger. Does this make sense? Yeah. Not sure? Please say if it doesn't. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. So that, yeah, that, that process, that process really broken down. And so part of what we're doing here, you know, when we look at our experience as we've been doing, really taking time to be silent, to slow down, to simplify, to look, you know, to calm the mind, to look at different aspects of our experience. Part of what we can begin to see is this involvement or this latching on, which <laughs> is kind of how I see it, of the self onto experience, making it my experience, making it me, rather than just this flow of experience moving through awareness, moving through life. And one of the, one of the words that used, that's used in, in Dharma language for this, one word is what I've just said, the sense of becoming, you know, when we get involved. And the other word is fabrication. Fabrication, which is, um, I think in English, fabrication has this um, element of like making up something. <laughs> but it's more a sense of doing or involvement or participation, I would say, in, in this case. So I'm going to attempt to speak about this <laughs> fabrication and, and just to say it's, it, it can be quite subtle stuff. So to just really relax as you're listening, not to try and kind of grab hold of it too much with the mind, just to kind of relax and let things in, kind of trust in it coming in and, and um, hopefully making sense at some, some point in your life, even if it's not today. And to really, so to, to, to rest back, open, relax, and have kind of a gentle curiosity around this, so not trying to, 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 to grab it too hard. And so the main thing that fabrication points to is this involvement and the, the fact that, um, that nothing exists independently of other things, basically. As Nathan was saying yesterday, that things inter are, that nothing exists completely on its own. So, for example, someone does something around us or to us, you know, says something, does something. And that something has an unpleasant Vedana, has an unpleasant feeling tone. You know, here in retreat, we can be very sensitive because it can just be, um, you know, someone not noticing we're there and just kind of cutting us <laughs> in the line of the food or, or something like that or coming into the hall. And that has an unpleasant Vedana, has an unpleasant feeling tone. And so then the perception comes in of being um, offended, you know, oh, I'm, I'm hurt, I'm offended by that. And then anger or hurt or both arise as a result. Yeah, we see, we see the process. Yeah, something happens, someone says or does something, unpleasant Vedana, then the perception that was an offensive thing 
and then the anger or the hurt arises. And then, and this is the kind of the, the point that, that's interesting for me tonight, and then the self latches on to that. So there's anger and hurt, and, or even before that, something offensive happens, and then there's, I'm offended, and then the anger arises, and then I'm angry. And so the, the self kind of builds up around each layer builds up more and more and more, becomes more and more solid. And if we look at it with a bit of perspective, we can see that there's many conditions that are affecting the simple happening or the simple interaction. You know, for example, um, what was the state of mind that I was in at that time? You know, was already feeling a bit low. Uh, what kind of memories were triggered? You know, how is the body? You know, am I tired? Am I hungry? Am I agitated? You know, all of these conditions are going to affect how that simple interaction is perceived and how the <coughs> sense of self, to what degree and in what way it's going to get involved in that. And what the fabrication points to is that all these conditions play a part. You know, so, so in the way we usually see things, we just see he did that, she did that. You know, that's what happened. That is what happened. You know, they did that. And me feeling like this is because of them. You know, or because of that action. You know, that's the, re the direct result. And we don't, we lose, we lose um, perspective of the whole big picture. Of course, how the other person was feeling in body and mind also, <laughs> you know, is part of the condition. So there's so many conditions, what the weather was doing. And there's so many conditions, what happened half an hour before. So many conditions that, that affect that. And what gets even more interesting is that, that this process of the self building up or participating in, in these things, it's so strong, so powerful. Um, and the identification is so powerful and so habitual, you know, it's actually how we know ourselves to be. Yeah, it's through these identifications that we actually on some level don't want to drop it or can't drop it. You know, which is again back to my example, like that, holding on, still there, even when the anger was dropped. So the sub, the, the object was dropped, but the holding on was still there. And we don't want to drop it, because if we drop it, if we let go of the sense of self, then on some level we're going to feel that subtle level of unpleasantness. But beyond that... <laughs> is emptiness, which for many of us is actually what we want <laughs> to be experiencing. But our habitual way, you know, is this creating the sense of self, having this identity. And so dropping that is really scary, really scary and really goes against how we've learned to be, how we've learned to function in the world. So. I'm saying this so that we can really be more understanding 
of ourselves, you know. It's not an easy thing to do. Not an easy thing to do. So sometimes, you know, we can find ourselves in situations where, you know, we see that I'm not letting go of something here. And part of, of, of why is because the identification is so strong. And if I let go, I'll have, what, what am I going to be identified with? How am I going to know that I exist? How am I going to know who I am? And so understanding, you know, that this is, it's difficult, it's scary, it goes against, against the stream of, of our habitual ways of being. And yet also understanding and being on retreat is an opportunity to see that, how much suffering this holding on, this identification causes us. How much of our suffering is, includes this aspect. And also that it causes suffering to the other. Yeah, it causes us suffering, and also is a lot of the a lot of the ways that we cause suffering to each other come from this identification. And a really simple example um, was coming to mind. You know, sometimes I've certainly had this experience having an argument with somebody. You know, or a debate. Maybe you guys don't have arguments. Maybe you're much more civilized than me. You just have debates. So you debate something with someone, and, you know, I'm really sure of my point of view. I really like my point of view. I'm really identified with my point of view. So even when the other person is starting to make sense, you know, I don't want to let go of being right. You know, I don't want to let go of whatever it is that I'm holding on to, even if they're making sense. You know, so it's sometimes we can see that happening sometimes we can see that happening in the example that Nathan was using yesterday of of a friend of ours and her strong patterning her strong conditioning of you know getting hurt and then seeing herself identifying with being the one who's wronged and the one who's the victim, and then the reactivity to that, again, really strong conditioning of running away. Yeah, so again, this is all forms of identification, and they can be so strong, you know, so, so strong. So I'm not at all in any point in this talk, in case it's not clear, I'm not implying that, you know, the fact that we're not all letting go is our fault <laughs> in any way, you know. It's really, it's, it's, it's very deeply ingrained stuff that we're, that we're dealing with here. And so, in this example, you know, this friend, you know, her such strong conditioning of situation coming up, triggering loads of history, and this identification of the victim, of the one who's been wronged, not being able to see almost any of the rest of the picture, and that really strong reactivity of running away. That's the only way to to deal with it, is to, to run away, which as he was saying, actually then, um, again, solidifies that self-view, solidifies that identity. And so what she did takes tremendous courage, 
yeah, and tremendous commitment of actually staying steady with that in the middle of that storm, seeing all that identification, being really caught up in the identification, and yet on some level knowing this isn't the whole story. Even if right now, you know, sometimes it's as if the conditioning, all we can see is this. You know, we can just see something that's this, this close up and it blocks up everything else. Yeah, because this is what we can see. This is the conditioning. This is the patterning. Blocks out everything else. But the knowing, this is all I can see, but I know it's not all that there is. So if I sit it out, if I wait a little bit, I give it time, which is incredibly difficult to do. You know, it's not easy. I wait. I stay. I don't follow that really strong reaction, that flight mode. And then a little bit more of the picture comes in and perspective comes in that case. Perspective comes and the letting go of the identification can come to the degree that it's possible to go and give this friend who you love dearly and has offended you a hug and say, you know, I want to put this behind us. You know, real greatness of spirit that is in all of us, you know, if, if, if the right conditions are there and that intention to sit these patternings, these conditioned responses out. And that deep aspiration to go beyond the habits, to go beyond the conditioning, to go beyond the stories that are recurring in our lives. Because every time we follow that story, that conditioning again, it's getting stronger. And every time we take a pause, even if it's just for a few seconds, then it weakens. And so, putting that in perspective, just to pause, and just take a few seconds before it takes over, or as it's happening, it's weakening it. It's weakening it slowly, but surely. And so there's this image of this, which I find really helpful and I think really um, follows on, on from this, from this um, example from our friend. It's this image of, um, that's used in spiritual teachings um, of imagining yourself rowing a boat on a lake. And you're rowing and it's all very quiet and peaceful. And it's just you on your boat. And it's a little bit misty. And suddenly another boat hits your boat. And for most of us, reactivity will come up immediately in that kind of situation, you know. And usually the reactivity is against the person in the boat. <laughs> Why weren't they looking, you know, what were they doing? Didn't they see I was having a peaceful morning, whatever. And what happens when we realize that the other boat is empty? There's no one there. It's just a boat float floating on the lake. So what happens when we realize that it's empty? And so we can use this metaphor, you know, for our relationships with other people when conditioning arises and also for our relationships with our own stuff. Realizing the emptiness of things, which is another way of saying <coughs> that everything is interconnected that nothing exists with an inherent separateness and solidity to it. 
You know, everything is empty of a separate self, a separate existence. And this, you know, it can be so freeing, so freeing because it can allow us to take so many things that we usually take very seriously with a little bit more space. And to really emphasize here that it doesn't remove responsibility. Sometimes this can get confusing for people. You know, it doesn't take away responsibility. Harm is caused in this world of ours. And there is responsibility for that. But we can see even those who are responsible are part of a network of conditions, which doesn't take away from the need to stand up, you know, and speak up against harm or injustice. It doesn't take away from that, but we can hold that in a much wider context, which supports equanimity, actually, what Nathan was speaking of yesterday. It supports equanimity because things aren't so narrowed down and fixed rather wide. So in the first example from this experience with anger, I want to kind of pull one more thing out of that. That experience of that subtle sense of dis-ease that I was seeing, and that was that hand clenched holding on to something that wasn't there. That, another way of speaking about it in Dharma language, was an experience of, of craving, of actually seeing craving without an object. Craving without an object. And seeing the, or and feeling the suffering in that craving. You know, that suffering is inherent in, in the sense of, of craving, in the sense of holding on, grasping on to things, um, and especially craving for identity. And clearly, I haven't said it yet, it's clear, if I hadn't been on retreat in silence and with a relatively clear mind, that sense of disease, disease and, and, um, and craving, dukkha, suffering, would have probably kind of gone through a few reincarnations and ended up landing on somebody you know either on myself or on someone else it would have it wouldn't have just gone away completely you know because we're so it's so difficult for us to just stay with 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 dukkha with discomfort and disease that it usually if we don't pay attention it transforms into an action or a word or a thought if it's directed towards ourselves and that, you know, gets directed. So it, it's so important to see this because it affects the way we, we act in the world. So either the anger itself, or if I had let go of the anger, the residue of that grasping would have had an effect. So craving as, a, a, a really, as the root of suffering yeah, craving as the root of suffering, the cause of suffering. And understanding it more deeply, seeing it more clearly, can help us let go of that, let go of a lot of unnecessary suffering in our lives. 
can help us fabricate less, feed the sense of self less. And it's really crucial to our awakening, you know, both awakening in the moment and then awakening as a more long-term, full process. And it's not easy. And as I've been saying, it's not simple. It's really at the core of the Buddha's teachings. It's really at the core of Dharma teaching. So craving is, of course, it's the second like this example is an example of the second noble truth that the Buddha spoke about um, as his basic teachings. And the first noble truth is that suffering exists, <laughs> that suffering is part of the human condition. That's the first noble truth. And the second noble truth is that suffering has a cause. And the cause of suffering is this craving. The cause of suffering is this grasping holding on, attachment, desire, wanting. The Pali word for, for craving is tana, and it's usually translated as craving, as attachment, sometimes as desire. But the literal meaning is, is thirst. The literal meaning is thirst, and, and I think that's actually much more powerful because it connects us to this kind of really... Um, very strong, very, very strong need that it has, like thirst does. You know, it's a very, very strong experience in us. Um, often we feel it as a sense of lack, you know, something missing, or as a wanting or a needing. And it can be interesting, like in, in this example, to see that it sometimes is underlying our experience, or most of the time, underlying our experience even when it's not pointed at an object. It's just there. When I was a teenager, I used to call it um, existential something. A thing like existential sadness or something like that. I had a name for it when I was in my late teens. And it's just this, this sense of not enough, you know, but on a very, like, on a very subtle level, not always very activated on a very, very subtle level. So that kind of raw underlying inner movement, which in itself is suffering. I keep saying that, but it's really important to see that, that in itself, even without, it's not just that craving leads to wanting something and that something changes and then we suffer. It's that also, but, it, but in itself, that movement causes suffering. And Ajahn Suchito has a, a, um, speaks about this in a way that I find really clear. And he says, Tana, so this, this cause of suffering, Tana, thirst, is not a chosen kind of desire. It's a reflex. Yeah, so it's not just desire that focuses on something. It's like a reflex. It's, it comes up in us. It's a desire to pull something in and to feed on it. This is also the language the Buddha used. It's like we're feeding on it. The sense of self, the sense of identity, the sense of existing feeds on this tana. It's a desire that is never satisfied because it keeps shifting from one thing to another. It keeps shifting from one sense space to another sense space 
from one emotional need or experience to another, from one sense of achievement to a new goal. It's the desire that comes from a black hole of need. However small or manageable the need is. So, you know, it can seem like, ah, oh, this is just a small need, you know, just, you know, it's lunchtime and I'm hungry. <laughs> you know, it's a small need and we know it's going to get attended to. But that is connected to this black hole of need, which is always there and just shifts from one thing to the other. I hope I'm not depressing you too much. <laughs> I just realized I can see all the faces. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually good news, but I guess it's a matter of perspective. So for me, it's good news because of that, you know, understanding that it's actually always there and we're not doing something wrong. And also often through meditation, we actually see it more. And so we can feel like we're getting more miserable. Whereas actually we're seeing more clearly. And this clear seeing is essential in order to to have freedom and to have happiness that isn't reliant on feeding this this kind of underlying need or black hole, as Ajahn Suchita says. So some really kind of... um, important qualities of Tana to, to keep in mind. The first one is, as, as he just said, it's non-deliberate. So we're not choosing it. It's a reflex. You know, it's, it's there. And this is, it's really important to remember because that allows us to not get too caught up in self-judgment when we feel it. You know, it's a reflex. It's like, you know, breathing or the reflex to, to, to eat and drink and nourish ourselves. It's a reflex. It's inbuilt in our system. The other quality of it that's, um, that's important to remember is, is it's bipolar. I like this, which Nathan touched on yesterday as well, that it includes both the desire and the aversion. Yeah. So the desire to have something and the desire to not have something, they're both aspects of tana. They're both aspects of this craving quality, this thirst. And the third is that it's unsatisfactory, unquenchable and addictive, which is why we're all in this state. (laughs) 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 Unsatisfactory, but unquenchable and addictive, you know, so that moving, looking, where do I satisfy it? So I tried here, didn't satisfy, I'm trying there. And there's also a quality of illusion in it because often we feel it in, you know, in, um, we feel it towards something specific, you know, a meal or for the wind to stop or whatever, you know, oh, if only that happened, you know, there's a ton of the thirst, I want that to happen. If this person will smile at me, then things will be okay. And then that thing that we desire happens and we feel better. And there's the illusion that it's because our need was fulfilled. But when we look more closely, the sense of ease is actually a relief because for a short period of time, the tana relaxes. So there's a relief that this craving, this really strong pull, relaxes for a bit. You know, we get that piece of chocolate that Nathan was talking about. And there's a relief. So it... But when we look more clearly, we see that it just, it moves, 
it moves, it moves. And so it's this, this suffering that Tana causes, it's from this nature of not being satisfied and being restless. There's a restlessness in it, you know, it's, it's moving, it's looking for something. And it looks for happiness. This is the, the biggest point, maybe. It looks for happiness in, it looks for lasting happiness in things that do not last. Yeah, looks for lasting happiness in things that themselves are conditioned and changing. So where do we go from here? <laughs> so this is, you know, what the Buddha pointed to as the, as the source or the origin of, of this experience of suffering that we're all familiar with to, to certain degrees. But he also pointed to the fact that there's a way out. There's a happiness and a satisfaction that are unconditioned that we can find that are not subject to change. And this, these two first noble truths are crucial on this, on this journey. We can't kind of jump to the path, to the end of suffering, without having some understanding of how much dukkha, dissatisfaction, and craving tana, how much they are interwoven into the fabric of, of who we are, into the fabric of our lives. And what liberates us is clear seeing. What liberates us is clear seeing. Clear seeing and the cultivation of, of wholesome ways of being, of skillful ways of being, which is really what we're doing here. You know, I always like to to remember for myself and to remind others, what are we doing when we're on retreat? You know, we're silent, we sit still for many t- hours of the day, you know, we do our jobs, um, you know, we're happy some of the time, we're unhappy some of the time to varying degrees. But what is it that we're actually doing? So we're cultivating clear seeing and we're cultivating wholesome qualities that support us both in the clear seeing and in the ability to stay steady with our experience, to not be pulled as strongly by the force of Tana, by the forces of the three poisons that Nathan was speaking about yesterday, the greed, hatred and delusion. You know, qualities like patience and generosity and renunciation (laughs) and truthfulness, you know, honesty. All these, all these beautiful qualities, equanimity, kindness, compassion, that we're cultivating just by doing our practice. And these make up the path to liberation. These make up the, the path to, to waking up. And they support us right here and now, you know. It's not that we're cultivating them just so that we get to the end. But they're actually supporting us right here and now. They actually already make our lives better. And in the teachings, they speak about this um, importance of practicing in kind of with two, two aims or two goals or two understandings. You know, one is 
to increase our present happiness, even if that happiness is still conditioned to increase our present happiness. And all these qualities that I was describing increase our happiness. And the other is to work towards the unconditional happiness, happiness that is not dependent on anything. And again, all these qualities lead there also. So here on retreat, we have great conditions to see what is going on, you know, to see the tana, to see the fabrication, to see the building of the self, and to see the suffering that arises from them. And we also have opportunities to let go of the suffering many times. Not completely, not always, but a lot of the time we can let go. And sometimes this happens naturally, this clear seeing and this letting go happen naturally. You know, just by cultivating presence, mindfulness and interest in our experience, it just happens naturally. And I have an example of this. I got permission from Nathan. (laughs) It's his story, not mine. So we were on a on a one month retreat in November. And Nathan's job on the one month retreat was to clean the dining room, which happened in the work period period after breakfast every day, just like here. And so one morning fairly late on the on the retreat, wasn't it? You can't remember. Okay. So one morning he was doing his job, he was cleaning the dining room and he got to a table that was really messy. You know, like there were lots of crumbs and I'm going to exaggerate, sorry. (laughs) There were crumbs and the chairs were all kind of pushed all over the place. And, 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 you know, and he found himself kind of thinking, this is a bit of a mess. You know, I wonder who who would just get up and leave (laughs) the table like this, you know. It's like really pretty inconsiderate to the poor guy who then has to come and, and kind of pull all the chairs out and sweep the floor and clean the tables and... And so then, you know, as you know, in retreat, sometimes we get a bit bored, so the mind starts playing games. He decided that he would try and figure out who it was that had sat at that table. And he was thinking, was it this person? No, they were sitting there. Was it that person? No, they were sitting there. Was it this person? No, they were sitting there. And then he realized who had sat at that table, which was himself. It's a great story. (laughs) And it really shows, you know, that that craving, you know, of who to blame, you know, for this little thing, you know, who to blame. And then that kind of going around and then just that presence and mindfulness, which eventually kicks in. And, you know, there he went chuckling to himself (laughs) in the dining room, realizing, you know, who, who had left that mess? So sometimes it happens naturally in that way, through the practice, through the cultivation of what we're doing. And sometimes we can intentionally look. You know, we can ask ourselves, in this moment, is there any grasping happening? In this moment, can I feel craving? How is it showing itself, if it is? What am I feeding 
or what am I creating or what am I identifying with right now? Just checking. And we can do it randomly and we can also do it when there's a, maybe a, a fairly strong experience to notice and to see how that changes the experience, that interest, that questioning, how that changes the experience. Can we relax that process of identification? Can we relax that process of fabrication that is creating the experience? And when we relax that process, we come closer to a sense of the emptiness of of all things, a sense of the emptiness of all things. So I'd like to finish with a, a haiku from a Japanese monk called Ikyu, I think, I-double-K-Y-U. And he says, My real dwelling, my real home, has no pillars and no roof either. So rain cannot soak it and wind cannot blow it down. My real dwelling has no pillars and no roof either. So rain cannot soak it and wind cannot blow it down. So let's have a moment of silence together. beings understand the truth of suffering. Male beings abandon the habit of craving. Male beings realize the path to full awakening and the unconditioned. Thank you for your listening.